we weren't looking at doing a part two of Nicodemus last week, but we kind of got involved in the study of the new birth in John chapter three. And when we look at Nicodemus, he's only mentioned in the gospel of John. He's mentioned three times there in John three, where he came to Jesus at night. And the discussion was the new birth or being born again. He'll be mentioned again in chapter seven, which we will get to shortly. And he's also mentioned in John chapter 19. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin court, the great Sanhedrin court, which was at Jerusalem. It would have had 71 members with the high priest being uh, the prince of the Sanhedrin, the, the Nasi, as he is called. And then one of the elders would be the master of the court. He would be second in command. And so I guess we could say that Nicodemus was just one of the regular members of the Sanhedrin court, one of the 69. And he did come to the Lord, and he did have that discussion with the Lord. And uh, we will see some of the, uh, I guess, ramifications, I think, from that study that he had that night with the Lord later when Jesus passes away and they're, they're involved in the preparation of the body. I will say this about the Sanhedrin court. Not only did they have that court in Jerusalem, but other communities could have lower courts. And by the way, this would be uh, the equivalent, I guess, to our Supreme Court for Judaism there in uh, in Jerusalem. But there would be lower Sanhedrin courts in other communities, but they would only be made up of 23 members. So we're talking about the major, the Supreme Court, if you will, of the Sanhedrin here in Jerusalem. And uh, I don't know if you've got anything else that you wanted to add on uh, last week's study before we get into this week, right? Well, one of the things that really impressed me as I studied about Nicodemus, not only here but in the other passages, was first of all that Nicodemus did come to Jesus in spite of the fact that this could very well have been the end of his career if the right people had taken it up with him. And this gives me the knowledge that there were, as the Bible says, people among these rulers that really believed in Christ. I, I read John 12, 42, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, at first, I think, whatever the reason, he came by night. Uh, obviously, he was protected from the criticism of men by doing that. But later on, we're going to see him step out in the light. And it's obvious that Nicodemus, as a ruler, is not one of those men that feared the praise of men more than wanting to do something good for Jesus. He was willing to take a public stand. And this really is one of the signs of the new birth. You know, Lloyd, I, I, <laughs> I've really been thinking a lot about Nicodemus, and I, I've thought about myself and, uh, and about the, the situations I've been in in my preaching time, and I know You've been there, too. When people would uh, take pot shots at the truth, pot shots at the church, pot shots at Christ. And sometimes, you know, I've been in situations where I just didn't do anything about it. And uh, maybe I just felt like I was outnumbered or I don't know. But I began to realize I'm not ever looking for a fight. But I'm always going to be aware of those times when I need to stand up and be what God wants me to be. And one of the signs that we're with godly people, that people around us are godly people. If you recall, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Well, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a ruler in Jerusalem. But I am proud to know that there were prophets, and there are rulers like Nicodemus, and there were Pharisees, which seemed to be very aggressive toward Christ, like Paul, that later on become very staunch supporters 
of Jesus, which to me is one of the great internal evidences that what was going on in the presence of these men was so powerful that as they watched the, the story of Christ unfold and listened to his teachings, that it changed these people. And you begin to see the new birth happening to these people. Yeah. And it changed the direction of their lives. And you see so, the, so far. Yeah, you yeah. see the power of the gospel acting, Amen. acting in their lives. And, uh, you know, you, you were talking about uh, Nicodemus there. He, he did take a great chance on this. I'm reminded in John 9, remember the man that's born blind. And yes. uh, they're, they're trying to, the Pharisees and them are trying to negotiate, navigate through what has happened. They know what has happened, but they're trying to keep it uh, on a low profile so that people don't just flock to him and everything. And they're trying to say, you know, well, we, do, we don't know if we believe if a miracle's been done or not. And, uh, you know, so they go to the parents and the parents are apprehensive about talking at all. And uh, they said, you know, we know that this is our son. We know he was born blind. Other than that, how he now sees, we don't know. And uh, verse 22 said these words spake to parents because they feared the Jews for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was a Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. This was the beginning of cancel culture, if you will, right here. Uh, and Nicodemus stood the chance that he could be canceled out of the Sanhedrin court because of the stand of faith that he took. But he did that, and uh, we don't know exactly what happened to him after the uh, uh, resurrection of Christ. Uh, you know, we don't know if he, if he continued uh, in the Sanhedrin court. I truly do believe that he became a Christian myself, because why would you go to all the expense, which we'll see in chapter 19 of helping uh, Joseph of Arimathea prepare the body. But we we get ahead of ourselves, I guess we should say. But, but, but we see some steps being taken to show that he was progressing toward Christ in his faith. And that tells me something, too. Sometimes in, in the midst of the culture you and I live in, I look at the political world, the religious world, and communities, and just look at the general, you know, lack of enthusiasm that uh, numbers of people have for the Bible and for Christ, and even, as you very ably pointed out, the cancel culture that wants to put religion totally out of the picture. But yet, there are still people, maybe they're like Nicodemus, maybe they're a bit cautious about it, but they still believe. And if, if the right stimulus is, is shown them, the right teaching is shown them, and they really focus on Christ, they're going to step out, and they're going to make defense, and they're, and they're going to take care of things that the Lord does in his work, and they're going to make sure that it's honored and respected, and that, that gives me hope. That yep. makes me feel good about this. Yeah, it, it, it makes us optimistic when we look at, yes. Yes. at uh, this man here. You know, as we get into, um, which we're fixing to do, into chapter 7, when we get into chapter 7, you kind of have to set the stage because there is a large element of the Sanhedrin court that really has the cart before the horse. They have already determined that they want to put Jesus to death. He's a thorn in their side. He is a threat to their power and uh, control over the people. And so they've already decided that they want to find a way or manufacture a way that they can put him to death. In chapter 7, they have sent some officers out to go and get Jesus, and hopefully they're going to bring him in and uh, get this whole process started. Uh, but it's not time yet. And so as they go, Jesus is speaking and He's quoting scripture and he's teaching scripture and these men are listening. And uh, it says in verse 40 of chapter seven, many of the people, therefore, whenever they heard this saying, they said of a truth, this man is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ comes of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. And then the officers in verse 45 came to the chief priest and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, 
Why have you not brought him? Now, this is back before the Sanhedrin court. The officers come back. They've been sent out and charged to bring Jesus back. They don't do it. And when they come back, they said, we've never heard anybody talk like this. And then the, off, uh, the officer said in verse 46, never man spake like this man. Then answered the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who does not know the law are cursed. And now then, Nicodemus, who is a member of the court, makes a very wise statement in the midst of this, of this sham would-be trial, I think. Nicodemus said unto them, that came, Nicodemus, that came to Jesus at night, being one of them, in other words, being a member of the Sanhedrin court, does our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? And they answered and said unto him, Are you also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went to his own house. You know, that's one of the wisest statements that could be made. There are so many judgments that are made among people. So many friends have been separated. So many congregations have been split. So many things have happened because decisions are made without hearing both sides of a story. And that's all that Nicodemus is trying to say. And that's what the law said at two or three witnesses. But every person who is about to be charged has the right to stand up and defend themselves against charges that are being brought, except in this case here. And they're ready to condemn him. And, and Nicodemus said, our law doesn't act that way. It, it, it provides for a man to be heard, to make his defense before we make a judgment. That's logic, isn't it, Ray? It is. And, and what I saw, too, is that um, Nicodemus making this protest he did this to protect two things. Number one, the sanctity of the law of God. And number two, his perception of who he saw Jesus to be. But you know, Lloyd, today I was pouring over chapter seven just in general, trying to get a feel for this moment, a feel for what brought Nicodemus again into the light. You know, he, he came by night the first time, and now the man's standing up in front of the, of the council. And uh, it's pretty clear, you know, uh, when they hear what he's got to say, maybe they're not going to connect up that he has a full faith in Christ, but they're, they're going to see he's not going with the agenda. Now, as I went back over chapter seven, and just very quickly, I want, I want to do this because there were a lot of reasons as to why it was very hard to offer a defense for the Lord at that time. When you look at verses 3 through 5, his own brothers doubted him. Verse 4, if you do these things. If? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Even his brothers didn't believe in him. So first of all, he had some family opposition. Anybody that knew about that would say, well, how could he be anything? His own family doesn't believe him. You know, normally, you and I well know that you can get into situations where people are upset with you, and the only place you can find comfort is in your family. But Jesus didn't even have that at this point. Yep. Number two, I noticed that uh, his appeal that he made to God's timing, my time has not yet come, but your time is all, their opportunities are always there. But what he's talking about is God's timing. Just think about it. This man was capable of doing great miracles. And, you know, the, the Jews had this thought that when Messiah come, he would do some great thing. Matter of fact, one of the rabbinical traditions was, float down out of the sky, just suddenly appear, float down out of the sky, balance with one foot on the pinnacle of the, of the temple, and everybody would see and know who he was. No. But, but Jesus operated by God's timing. So there were a lot of miracles and things he was capable of doing, but he wasn't allowed to do, which would have made this a very easy situation for him. But number three, I noticed that he said the problem that we're having with the world he said, I testify of it that its works are evil. Look here, he was condemning the deeds of the people, even though these people, and if you recall in chapter 8, he will do this. Uh, well, we're, you know, we're, we're connected to Abraham. <laughs> so, 
you know, we're, we're not, we're not uh, children that are illegitimate. And he said, look, if you were really of Abraham, you'd love me, but you, you, you want to kill me. And he said, you're evil. And, and as I moved down through this, the people, look at verses 10 through 13. Well, who is he? Where is he? He's good. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Now, you're in, you're in the middle of all this. You're there in a crowd of people. One says one thing about him. One says another. And, you know, people tend to go on that public opinion. There was a true paradigm that was being shown, and Jesus is the only one saying it. He said, look, uh, my doctrine's not mine. And, you know, the one that sent me, he spoke of the glory of God and all this. But then he, he just almost begged them. He said, look, I did one work. He said, I did one work. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Now, there you go. I want to I say this. Every Christian is obligated for his soul's sake, if he wants to go to heaven, when he makes discernments and judgments, they must be righteous. If we judge without mercy, guess what? That's exactly what we're going to get from God, unless we repent of that. Well, as, as I kept reading through the chapter, I suddenly realized what a tough time this is. What a tough time. And even Jesus began to give warnings about verse 25 on down. And he said, look, pay attention. I'm going to be leaving soon. And, and this thing's going to even get worse. And, and, and he focused on his mission for just a little bit there in verses 37 through 39. And he said, look, if you believe in me, you, you can be sustained because living waters are going to flow from you. Now, he's talking about some spiritual things involving the Holy Spirit. Right. And, and verses 40 through 44, as, as you pointed out, there was a divided community there. Verse 43, division among the people. Now, what I'm trying to show you, it was a volatile time. And all of a sudden, here comes the officers who officially had been sent to arrest him. Now, just think, let me tell you something. If a big state trooper car pulled up at my house and they let me out of the house in, in handcuffs, everybody would be going, what in the world Raymond do? What did he do? Yeah. And they'd be the talk of the town, let me tell you. Well, these officers, why didn't you bring him? Nobody talks like this man. He's different. And, and look at the Pharisees. They didn't even hear the speech. And what did they say? Are you deceived? Yep. Yeah. Are you deceived? Have any of the rulers believed in him? Well, now, wait a minute. When they threw that out, Nicodemus is standing there. Now, he could have said yes, and they probably would have took him aside and put him in prison somewhere. But he simply asked the question, does our law judge a man before it hears him? Now, what I'm a little bit amazed at, that would have been a really good spot to have quoted out of Isaiah 53, where it talked about the Lord was taken from his judgment. In other words, he wasn't given a fair assessment by the Pharisees or later on by, by Herod or by Pilate. You know, his justice was taken from him. Yeah. And when you see people that play with justice and throw it, throw discernment away and, and judge uh, with agendas, you're not seeing God's people. That's not God's people. That's what I was learning from this. And, and Nicodemus is a powerful example of trying to be a fair, just man. He is. He's a voice of reason in a Amen. greatly divided uh, atmosphere here uh, where people really don't know what to do. But th this voice of reason says, and here's here's the counter. I, I want to I want to take the role of the uh, of this segment of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin court that have sent these officers out. They did the same thing around the time that Jesus was about to be crucified whenever they were having the trial. They go around and they try, the, they are divisive in every way. And they go around and they try to build a coalition. How many people can we get with us, you know? And so they go through the crowd. Now, he's going to ask in a moment, because it's traditional, uh, who do you want me to release? You want me to release Jesus or Barabbas, this, this notorious murderer. 
uh, we want you to say that, uh, you know, you release Barabbas and, uh, and you crucify the Christ. That's what we want you to say. Now, Scripture doesn't tell it, but if we read between the lines, I would say that some of the things that are being said here is if you want to keep your job, if you want uh, us to continue to buy products from your company, you're going to do what we say here. And that is as unrighteous as it could be. Get the facts before you make a judgment. Get the facts. Understand every side of a story before you make a decision. Otherwise, you're going to have, uh, you know, you're going to have to answer for that. You're going to have uh, really mud in your face, I guess you could say, after making a decision that, uh, that, that is totally uncalled for. And that's what they're doing here. And, uh, you know, whenever, when, look at Nicodemus, whenever he says, what does our law say? Our law says, you got to be fair. You know, we can't condemn this man because we haven't heard from this man. Now, rather than them say, you know what? You're right. Let's uh, set up a time. Let's bring him in here. No, they didn't say that at all. They go into a particular point of the law and they said, uh, you know, are, are, are you also from Galilee? Have you ever known? Have you ever read? Can you find anywhere in Scripture that the Christ, the Messiah, has ever been said that he's going to come out of Galilee? No, he's going to come out of Bethlehem. And uh, You know, what's wrong with you? Rather than go back and say, you're right. That's what we need to do. But so many times we just throw caution to the wind and uh, we just lose our sense of balance and fairness, don't we, a lot of times. We do, and really what, what Nicodemus did is, is exactly what we need to do in this culture, but let me show you. When you read the law on judging like this, and, um, you know, um, well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, choose wise, understanding, knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And this goes back eventually to the setting up the 70, but I want to read you something. He said, then I command your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brethren, judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that's too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. I will hear it. And I command you at that time all things which you should do. Now, now. That's exactly what Nicodemus was doing. He said, let's appeal back to what God says about these matters. Well, just out of curiosity, I, I, I can read several places in Scripture when the Lord himself appealed back to the witness of God yeah. and how that God witnessed who he was and this kind of thing. But I want to show you something. Not only do we live in a time when men play with justice and men pervert justice, but we live in a time when men will lie about each other. Uh, it, with with impunity, and I want to show you what the law actually said. That the old Mosaic law said in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 on down: One witness shall, shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. You shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now think about that. We've heard people say an eye for an eye. But one of the very special cases of that judicial punishment was when a man brought false witness against another man, then whatever he wanted done to that man under that false witness was to be done to him. Right. Wow. I know it. And, Ooh. you know, that was the law. And that is right. But you know, so many times whenever people, they want that we are so selfish. People are so selfish. 
that we want our way and we'll do anything in the world to get our way. And we'll lie in order to set a precedent on something and uh, we'll make it out, you know, to be one way whenever in reality it's another way. You know, down in Texas, uh, Texas is passing a law, or the state legislature is, for voter integrity there. And what they're trying to do is just ensure that every vote counts and that every vote is a legitimate vote. And one of the ways that they want to do that, part of this law, requires that you have some kind of identification to show that you are who you are and that you're only going to vote once. Now, uh, I believe that everybody has a vote, everybody has the right to vote, and everybody ought to vote. But... I also know that there is a lot of voter fraud. And whenever we don't have ID and everything, uh, that opens the door for that. Now, a lot of the Texas legislators that, that are against this law, they say it is restricting voting, uh, you, you know, the, the access to voting because you want uh, ID. You want some kind of uh, photo ID of, of these individuals. So they all get out of Texas so that the law can't, uh, they can't take a vote on it today. They all get on a plane. You know what they had to do when they got on the plane? <laughs> they had to show ID. Now, look how illogical that their argument is here. Now, why didn't they say whenever they started to get on the plane, you're restricting my right to get on this plane? They didn't argue that. You know why? Because they know that that is the right way to go about something. But we throw caution to the wind. We throw logic to the wind. And our society today and many of our leaders today are like these Pharisees right here that are just, they, they've got it figured out what they want to do. They want to kill Jesus. Now, we got to just manufacture some kind of charge or some kind of something to just get it done. The law doesn't work that way. And Nicodemus said, this man has a right to come in here and us question him and investigate and make sure that what everybody is saying is the way it is. That is the law, and that's the way it ought to be today as well, right? And, and all he's trying to do is is to be fair and to hear him. And listen, it's like one fellow once said. He said, you know, we can all examine truth. Truth has nothing to fear from a true examination. Matter of fact, I'm going to say this to our audience. Give Jesus a fair trial. Yeah. Take your Bible. I, I had a young man one time say to me, and he was young, and I'm, I say he's 13, 14 years old. He said, well, I don't believe there's a, there's a God. And I said, you're not qualified to make that statement. I said, first of all, you're just a kid. You don't know anything. You haven't learned anything. I said, you take your Bible, and you study it, and you live 30 or 40 more years, and then you tell me what you believe. Yeah then at least I know you would have thought it out. But I said, but you're not capable of making that determination with no more experience than you have. And none of us are able to have a real faith unless we examine the scriptures, study, test, prove, you know, give thought, meditate. That's what we're trying to get people to do, Lloyd. It, it, we're not trying to become the final say on these verses. No. But we're trying to get people interested so they will let the light shine through their own eyes into their own heart. Give Jesus a lesson. Give him a chance. Amen. Amen. Uh, open his book. Open his word. Read it. Then you can make a, a logical decision. Don't go into it with a preconceived idea or bias. Just let Jesus speak to you through his word. Read Amen. that word, understand that word, and then make a logical decision. Don't worry about what your family's going to say. Don't worry about what the community's going to say. Don't worry about what the culture's going to say. Don't worry if if you are in tune with uh, this woke society that we've got now or any of these the, these crazy ideas that people are coming up with. Just you and Jesus in his word. Let him speak to you. Give him a lesson. Give him a, a fair hearing and then make a, a, a logical decision at the end of that. Ray, there was a preacher. I'm not going to mention this preacher's name. You're going to know him. Uh, you're probably going to know as I tell the story. A lot of things were being said about this man that were not true. But the people that were saying those things never came and spoke to that man. I know this. One man came 
and spoke and found out the truth and turned a situation around. That is exactly what Nicodemus is saying right here to this group. Give this man a chance. Let him tell his story. Let, it, let us bring him before the court and let us ask questions of him, and then we will make a determination. You cannot make a determination by what you heard someone else say or just by hearing half of a story or one side of a story. And there have been so many friendships, marriages, congregations. There's been so much division that has been caused because nobody gives both sides a fair hearing. And and that, that's all Nicodemus is saying. He's not necessarily standing up for Jesus. He's standing up for God's law, isn't he? Yes, he is. And, and I think right now we can all say we're seeing the Holy Spirit. And remember what the, that analogy that the Lord used. It, it's like a wind that blows and it moves stuff. Well, we're seeing the spirit of that teaching that happened in John 3 that night moving Nicodemus to give voice to the justice that he saw in the eyes of Christ. Yep. You're exactly Very right. Important. And you know, one of the lessons we've got, uh, some lessons down at the bottom of the page here, the lessons for us, uh, that we can gather from this, especially out of this chapter right here, uh, that is still prevalent today. And that is pharisaical conservatism can blind us to the truth. In other words, you look around, let's just say that you, uh, you're you with a group of Christians and uh, or you're with a specific church or what have you, and this is the way they've always done this, and this is what they say. And so you've got a tradition there. Tradition is is was the main problem with the scribes and Pharisees. Now, I do give them credit for being uh, very, very conservative with God's law, and that's the way that we should be. But their traditions usurped God's law, and, and Jesus challenged them to that. But we can do the same thing, can't we, Ray, today? Yes, we can. Uh, one little story from my, my conversion. I remember in talking with early preachers when I first became a Christian, You know, I basically was informed that I needed to really study everything I'd been taught. And that anything that wasn't, you know, kosher with Scripture, I need to be ready to let it go. Well, I didn't mind that. I accepted that. But I also told those fellows, but I will study everything you teach me. And if it's not in the Scriptures, I'll not be a part of it. Right. And, and, and that, that, that's, that word, God, is a two-edged sword. Not only will it cut away the blindness and the ignorance of, of a religious world, but sometimes it has to cut away the arrogance of people that are trying to swing it for the Lord. Yeah. And we, we have to learn that if there are traditions as, well, I remember what Jesus said one time. He said, he said, you've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Now, not all traditions are bad because many are based on God's word. But if it's just a tradition of our, of our culture or our favorite teacher, or as I said one occasion, where a fellow went to school to learn how to preach, yeah. then that's got to be dropped. Yeah. That's got to be dropped. And, and what I see in Nicodemus, I see a man that's moving away from the conservatism. Now, I make a difference between the word conservative and the religion of conservatism. Conservatism not only conserves uh, standards that would have been right and good and historically correct, but it also conserves our personal interpretations and agendas. Yeah. And, and that's where we're going to have to make some changes. And we're going to have to understand that not every subjective thought that we have or agenda that we're on is going to be consistent with the will of God. And But yet they're hard to turn loose of. Um, I, there, years ago, there was a preacher that would come to hear me preach. And, and uh, when I would maybe say something that he didn't totally agree with, he let me know about it. And, I expected him to. I wanted him to. But I got to telling him, I said, well, I don't think that's that's go biblically because I think that's just one of your holy cows. And and uh, he finally figured <laughs> out what I meant by that. <laughs> you know, a verse that I really like here in chapter 7, and I think a lot of times there are these bits, these little nuggets of wisdom in Scripture that we just kind of let go. 
But it said the very last verse, and every man went to right. his own house. You know, that's what we need to do so many times. Rather than get into the, the grand swell of the crowd and what does the crowd believe, what does culture believe, you know, what does my generation believe, go to your own house, just you and Jesus. Just be by yourself with him and work this thing out. And then it really doesn't matter because if Nicodemus is trying to do something and worry about what the other 70 there in the Sanhedrin court are worried about, he's going to miss the mark just as you and I are if, we, if we're bringing in, you know, what's, what's family going to say? What's my wife or husband or my children or my employer or, you know, anybody? What's, uh, what's the town going to think if I make this decision for Christ? None of that really matters. The only thing that matters is you and Jesus. He's bringing you to the light. Let that light sink in to your heart and make an informed, intelligent, wise decision. And Nicodemus is, is not quick to pull the trigger. He's calculated, he's logical, and he's on the right track right here. And, and, and we see this building, don't we, Ray? We do, and I, I'll add one other thing to that. That verse caught my eye, too. And when they went to their own house, it, he had diffused the situation. You remember, they're, they're really upset. They want the law officers to bring Jesus in. They're right. fussing about it. But, but all of a sudden, the whole crowd breaks up, and each goes to his own, and I think that is to meditate and think. But it reminded me a whole lot of what we talked about not long back in chapter 8, when the Lord wrote on the ground those that heard it, they were convicted, and they went out one by one. Remember that. So I'm not going to say he converted a bunch of people, but he averted, he averted a, a travesty of justice that was about to happen. And sometimes, Lloyd, Sometimes all it takes is one clear statement of wisdom to bring people that are kind of on the fence to pull them back. And, and people that are trying to stir stuff up, if they're out there by themselves, they hush them, they get out of the way. Yeah. But if they think they've got the crowd, they'll push and pull. But he was able to avert that. So just that one statement, appealing back to the law, that one protest, actually for that little moment there protected christ yeah protected christ you know what and i've often said this watch people that speak often and speak loud uh wisdom has very few words to say but they're worth listening to now nicodemus didn't say much not near as much as the pharisees if you went back and counted all the words and who said them in this chapter right here in the context that we're looking at the Pharisees are, I mean, the words are just rolling out of their mouth just constantly. Watch those people that talk often and talk loud. A lot of times what they're trying to do is build a coalition. And as a producer of this program, I've got to move us on to chapter 19, verse 38 <laughs> through 42. Ray, I'll give you the privilege of reading that context, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Okay. We, we have the text where um, in John 19, he refers to the crucifixion. The Lord has said, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up the spirit. The soldiers pierced his side with the spear. Blood and water came out. And uh, John references some scriptures that were fulfilled. But then beginning in verse 38, and now I read. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. That's an interesting statement there. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night. Now notice that uh, it, all three texts that we've read about uh, reminds us that he came to Jesus by night. But he came, didn't he? Yeah. Also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and it says 100 pounds there, some discrepancies sometimes over the measurement, what was a pound then. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. 
Well, and you had a interesting comment. We uh, talked briefly. I don't know if it was tonight. I don't think it was. I think it was last week about uh, bringing a hundred pounds of this. That's way more than what was needed, wasn't it? Absolutely, because actually that could have been for the burial for several people, really. And also, we realized that some of the ladies were going to try to come and bring some more. Yeah, you know. Uh, on the Sunday that he was raised up. And I have read over the years several uh, different statements about what this was worth, but this was a lot. This The Jews used these things to retard corruption, change the smell, and honor. Yeah. And th- it is said by some people that this would have been a very expensive burial. I mean, thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of, of money. And if you'll recall back in chapter 12, when the lady poured the uh, anointment upon the Lord, it said that was worth 300 denarii, which was 300 days of labor. That's almost a year's then. work. Yeah. Yes. Almost so, a year's work. And, and, I, and, and, and you're, you know, we're saying, why was, why was so much being spent here? And I think it shows that these men were deeply convinced that this man was not a normal man, that there's something serious going on here. And they have a great, a great faith that wants to honor him, and they care about him. Now, do you do recall there was a prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 9, that, you know, they made a place for him with the rich right. in his death. He received a rich man's burial. He, not, only, he not only a rich man's burial, I have read some commentators that, seem to suggest that this was the equivalent of a royal burial. He is the king of kings. And I think that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, I think that they both recognized this. I don't know if it was you telling me or something that I read, but this 100 pounds would have been enough really to have anointed 200 people, 200 bodies. Was that you that was telling me? I read it, yes. I read that, yeah. So... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say most people in that day and time could not afford that, obviously, because one commentator said this was over a hundred thousand dollars worth of spices and such in today's market. Yeah, and it's incredible to me that that much was spent. And then on top of that, putting him in a new tomb that was hewn out of the rock—that was nothing but a rich man's place to be buried. And there, and it says there was no one in that tomb. Now. Lloyd, when you when you study the burials that they did in these, um, uh, well, I would call it like a cave with a rock in front of it, but they were chiseled out by you know special artisans. They would cut those things out, and oftentimes they would cut these little couches around the wall. Yeah. And the dead body would be wrapped and laid on one of those ledges, and over a period of uh, maybe a year, the body would bad, uh, gradually disintegrate, and then they would gather up the bones and put them in an ossuary, or or even sometimes they had uh, little dips cut out in the wall, and they would set those bones in there, and they'd be ready for another funeral. But, but, but think about it. There's nobody in this tomb. Now, I think there's actually a very special reason for that. That way, they couldn't say, "Well, his body just got mixed up with all the other bodies that could have been in there." Right. There was there was nothing else in there but him. You see. And you're talking about the uh, the ossuaries that they would eventually put the bones in. That wasn't a wooden box either. That was a carefully carved uh, stone box, very, very decorative that they would do, you know. And you were talking about people of means, people that were very rich uh, would have a tomb like this and would have all of the uh, preparation and the ossuary and, and all of that. I mean, you're talking about a lot, a lot, a lot of money. Jesus couldn't afford to do that with the earthly means that he had as far as money, and his family sure couldn't have uh, done that on, uh, well, Joseph is gone now, uh, his earthly father, but the family didn't have that kind of money. Uh, But here is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and I think this is Joseph's tomb, don't you? I I do believe that. I think that this has been made, and for him... And I think that, you know, uh, people today, they will go ahead and make funeral arrangements for themselves and go to the 
to the funeral home and go ahead and pay for their funeral and and talk with the funeral director, you know, what they want and go ahead and pay for it and everything. I think Joseph has already made arrangements, has already had this tomb hewn out. Everything is ready for him. And I think that probably Nicodemus has put money aside as well uh, for his own burial. Uh, and he just takes that. And, uh, and both of these guys take their own money that they would be put away with and they buried Jesus because they recognize that this is royalty. You know, look at the crucifixion itself, the soldiers that stood around. You remember what one of the soldiers said? Truly, this was the Son of God. If Amen. that soldier can see that, why can't these men here that are very knowledgeable, very logical men, very versed in the Scripture, they know that this is royalty. They know that this is Messiah. They know that this is not the end, that something else is going to happen, don't they? Yes, and one other thing I want to add, just to verify this was Joseph's tomb. It says in Matthew's account, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his oh, new tomb, yeah. which he had hewn out of the rock. Yeah. And roll the stone. Well, now, but here, to me, one of the, even though great expense and great honor is being manifested in this burial, but also something else. Joseph goes to Pilate. Now, I mean, this is the fellow that basically turned him over, you know, to the Roman soldiers for the crucifixion. And Nicodemus also came. And now they publicly want the body of Jesus. Now, first of all, can you imagine taking that body down off the cross? Can you imagine rolling that body up into a, a clean type of linen cloth and the two men just basically hugging him and picking him up and then transporting him down to this tomb area and then carefully putting the mixture of myrrh and aloes on him. I mean, this this is incredible. I saw a man one time. I was doing a funeral for a little baby that died. And uh, we were supposed to have met at this little church out in the country. And they had a, they had a little shelter there that they had, uh, they had gatherings under. And it had any walls. But it come a sudden storm of snow and even lightning. And it got real cold. I won't ever forget it. Well, when we got there, whoever run the church forgot to open up the building so people could go in and warm up. So there we were trapped outside underneath that little shelter, the wind just blowing. And the baby was in a little small casket. And all the people gathered around us and pulled out their umbrellas and, and their coats and got up real close to the mother and the father. And we had a little service under there, about froze to death. Now, but get this. Then the daddy picked up that little casket. And he walked right out into that rain and that snow. And, and it was just very, very uncomfortable. And he, he and a couple of his brothers. And they went out and placed the little baby in the grave and buried it. And I just, I just thought, wow. What would that be like to, you know, with your own hands now, yeah. bury someone you love like that? Well, Right here, you're going through that very self-same thing. And this faith now has expanded. But think what kind of faith they've got. This is a man now that's dead. And all the other disciples, where are they at? They've all run off. They, they're gone. But these men are right out there taking care of this and going to get him in the ground before Sabbath comes because by law, you know, he couldn't stay up on that, on that cross. The Jewish law wouldn't allow him to. But honor wouldn't allow it either. So what I saw was a declaration, and here's what I want I think one of the best lessons from this. In that moment, they did what they could. They just did what they could with what they had. I've met people. I, I got a, I got a uh, communication from a young lady, and she was thanking me for programming that we've done and that I've done. And she said, I've always been an introvert. And she said, and I, I, I just wondered how I could ever be an extrovert and share the word of God. But she said, but I realized I just have to do what basically I have to do with what I've got. Right. 
Well, you know, that little girl before the pandemic had set up a prison ministry, Lloyd, and they had baptized 11 or 12 people in that prison ministry that she was on a jail ministry. And I don't have any of those people stayed faithful, but she put herself out there with what she had. Yeah. And I know it, it, she wouldn't like me or you. Me or you just feed on the crap, but not her. It was a chore for her to do what she did, yeah. but she did it. Yeah. And that's what these guys are doing, you see. This is a very, very, very public display of their faith. They have made a public confession that they believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the King of Kings. And let the Sanhedrin court think what it will. Let the Pharisees and scribes think what they will. Let Herod and the Roman Empire think what it will. They have no idea what ramifications are going to come their way. They don't care because they have a very, very courageous faith, don't they? And the last statement that uh, you suggest that we put on our lessons uh are we courageous in our faith? Do we have the kind of faith and courage that we can stand up and make decisions like this? Logical decisions. You know, uh, Christianity so many times has a bad name. You have preachers that get up and babble and, and holler and scream and beller and bawl, and you really don't get anything out of it. Christianity is a logical, intelligent, God gave us words and those words have great power, cutting power, to, to split the, the, the very soul and spirit of a man. It is intelligence that you listen to. It's logical that you think about it and then make application in your life. These two men did that, but it took a lot of courage. to. And as you said, Jesus is dead. All they have to do is walk away, but they just can't. And that's what faith does. It will not let us walk away from the Lord, no matter what the circumstance is. Wow, what a powerful lesson that we get from Nicodemus, the man that came in the night and, as you said, left in the light. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one other little quick tidbit. You know, when you buried a stranger in your tomb, you couldn't bury your family in there anymore. I want you to think about that. Nicodemus, of course, uh, I mean, Joseph of Marimathea, um, the, the resurrection will take care of that problem for him. Yeah. But at the time that he did that, I don't know what he fully understood about all that. But evidently he didn't care. He was going to dedicate all of that, even if it meant he could never use that again for himself. He's willing to start and all over. That's right. And you know, that's what, that's what a Christian has to do. We started this thing out with being born again. You start completely over. Well, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he's ready to start everything all over. I may not be buried there. You know, I'm going to have to go somewhere else and, and I'm going to start all over. But that's what the Lord does to you. He allows you and he gives you an opportunity to just start completely over. That's one of the best lessons in this whole study, Lloyd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ability to start all over. Yeah. To be born again, as he said in, uh, in there in chapter 3. Ray, I thank you so much for your knowledge and your dedication and uh, for uh, all that you do on, on these programs here. It's just a joy to be with you each and every Tuesday night, and I just hope the Lord gives us so many more of these. Well, Lloyd, I, I think the Lord put us together. And I have learned, I've learned so much um, uh, when I sit and listen as you talk, I'm learning. And I believe, I believe anybody that would listen to these programs would learn. And one of the mo most important things they'll learn is, you know what, if those two boys can get that, I can too. <laughs> most certainly, <laughs> most certainly can. And no offense taken by that statement. I'll just say that as well.